is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another Serious Angler podcast. As always, I'm your host, Bailey Eigbrett, and joined with me is the captain, Mr. Andy Full. What's going on, buddy? You know, um, it's been an eventful week since um, we returned from the Classic. So, um, just happy to be on tonight, I should say that. So, (laughs) yeah. yeah. Glad you got some downtime to come join us and uh, some fishing to take your mind off things, I should say. Yeah, fishing is always a plus. Um, Hoping to get out steelhead fishing maybe Thursday. I doubt it, but I got a couple guide trips next week. And I got to figure out when I'm going to get my boat and get it down to the marina to get it ready. Because it's just like every time I got to go, it's either snowing, raining, or um, my wife ends up having like emergency surgery. So like, yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's how my week's going. So yeah, like this post-classic stuff has been pretty fun. <laughs> I, I think you're saying fun in the sarcastic sense, correct? Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Just making sure <laughs> we don't need Amanda to come kill you, but <laughs> we are very happy that Amanda is doing well. I know we're not going to dive too deep into that. Uh, but we are happy that uh, she's all good and back home. Yep. Hopefully no trips needed to go back. <laughs> oh, man. Like, it's it's been a whirlwind. Um, I took Emmy to church on Sunday just real quick, and she texted me, and she's like, I'm going to immediate care. And then immediate care was like, you're going to the hospital. And then she came home last night. So, um, oh, grief. yeah, it was fun. He's like, you have appendicitis, I'm pretty sure. You need to get your appendix out. And sure enough, she had appendicitis and had her appendix removed. So grief. that poor thing. She's in so much pain. She's laying on the couch right now watching a movie, and I can kind of hear it in the background. So (laughs) (laughs) I uh, was joking, half half joking with Andy offline here, that uh, I might just need to stay clear of him and amanda because they over the past few months they just like one of them every other week (laughs) oh yeah and then on top of i stabbed myself in the bottom of my foot this morning and i bled through like two pairs of socks i've been limping around all day it's just great like you know i'm a disaster right now stay clear Let's just put an asterisk on it that Andy in the boat is very dialed in. So you get this guide service, you're good. But like <laughs> outside, clutz. Yeah. At home, it's a shit show. For a lot of <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Buddy. No, uh, no, you don't have to kid. I, I'll own that. So like. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> you know, it's kind of just think of it this way. Like it's kind of like Bill's Mafia. They're always going through tables just. I'm always falling down, klutz. Andy's the guy that Andy's the guy that falls on the ladder to jump off on the table. He doesn't even get to the final. To the all right, right, (laughs) like get up. In real sense, I would have to be like blackout drunk to fall off of a ladder. I've climbed plenty of ladders while drunk. I don't know. I don't have more faith than you. I'm gonna be honest. (laughs) All right. All right. Oh man, uh, it's true. Kyle here, he's a hell of a host, though. That's a uh, dang fact. Thank you, friend. Thank you. Oh, easy, easy on the eyes. eyes. I don't know if that's true. I can't agree with that one. <laughs> I, uh, Kyle, Kyle, just gotta be careful with those compliments, man. <laughs> <laughs> Get you in trouble. <laughs> um, but uh, for folks that are tuning in right now, just to kind of preface this, we are having an absolute legend on the show tonight, Mr. Gary Klein. 
um, who's going to join us here in about 15 minutes because he's actually preoccupied right now down in Texas doing something that's pretty cool that we're excited to share with you guys. And then we're going to dive into like his whole tournament career from start to finish of like one, how we got to start. Cause I think we're pretty curious about that, but two where, cause he's basically seen it all, you know, he's mm-hmm. seen basically the inception of tournament bass fish uh, of bass fishing. And he's still going strong today, being a co-owner and also competing in the bass pro tour. It's going to be pretty intriguing to kind of see, one, you know, what has changed, what has not changed, what needs to be improved, what, uh, you know, what things did bass uh, tournament fishing improve over time, a whole bunch of different stuff. We're really going to crack it open with them. And we got some juicy baits to kind of go through at the end, which is going to be pretty cool. Ooh, so we got a lot too of much juice, a lot of juice, too much. Uh, we got not too much, but we got a bunch of bass fishing history coming on tonight. But so you're stuck with Andy and I for a few minutes here while uh, Gary gets situated. Um, and we'll get him on the show here in a little bit. Uh, but I think first thing we want to talk about, and I don't want to take up too much time with this, uh, but I do want to plug selfishly that I have a new YouTube channel in the works that is going to launch tomorrow night. Uh, the channel trailer will be out tomorrow night and it's called be the fish be like capital B E. I thought I, I thought I was super smart and saying be the fish, you know, B E is my initials. Like yeah. the only thing in my life where my initials actually work out for something, <laughs> Um, but that's uh, going to be linked down below. If you guys want to check it out or check it out on social media, you guys can go over and subscribe. It's basically just all going to be short form content, you know, 10 to 20 minute videos, just fun fishing from the kayak boat bank, whatever have you. It's just going to be serious anglers, all long form hour long videos, video series, and just like podcasts where this is just going to be straight up just fishing content. So I uh, wanted to be able to get that across to you guys without clashing with the serious angler content. So, if you guys want to subscribe, that would be awesome. I will end up drop, after the show. I'll drop the link in the description for you guys. But uh, I know Andy might have something in the works here soon as well. So stay yeah. tuned for that. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll just say it now. It's not anytime immediate. I'm working on it, trying to figure out when I'll be able to do it. But pretty much the same thing. Um, me and Bailey have talked about it quite a bit, and we're each going to have our own individual. Um. YouTube channels just because I do a lot of steelhead guiding as well. And I feel like there's a lot of information I can give there. So it doesn't clash with this serious angler channel. I'm going to do some stuff over on my own side as well in the future. I don't know when it will be, but it will be sooner than later, probably maybe this summer sometime when I have a free moment to breathe. (laughs) (laughs) So be on the lookout for it. Well, obviously we'll show you guys when that's coming. Uh, The other thing is, we had our San, uh, Santee Cooper uh, Bassmaster Fantasy Fishing Show last week. And as of last week, it was looking like it was going to be just outright nutty, catching giant bags. But uh, from the sounds of things, <laughs> Santee Cooper sucks right now. Mm. Uh, and I'm sure there's some guys that are probably on them that aren't saying anything about it and that we'll just see on Bass Track on Thursday. But it, from the sounds of it and the looks of the weather, apparently things have been pretty brutal, which... Andy, do you got anything to comment on that? Well, I mean, I think we're seeing like the calm before the storm, right? Like the classic, it was like 83, 84 degrees. It's closer to the Atlantic, so it always stays a little bit warmer on the East Coast like that near the ocean because it tends to have more stable weather. But um, this cold front, I think the fish probably started to move up and it might have just put them into a funk. And I think we're going to see if if it whoever makes it to Saturday and Sunday, 
I think those are going to be the days where it's more stable and you're actually going to start seeing some bigger bags dropped and maybe even some fish like actually pull up on the beds and set up and get caught that way. Um, it's going to be a junk fisherman's tournament in my opinion though. Like um, junk fishermen, guys that know how to catch them in all stages because there are probably post-spawn fish as well right now. Um, those guys are going to be the ones who catch them, in my opinion. So I'm glad I chose my team the way I did. Yeah, I I pretty much went on the preface of all sight fishing. So yeah. I might be screwed being that we have our rule that it's like once we set the lineups, the lineups stick and we can't change them. We just did it because it, it makes things interesting and it kind of adds some drama to uh, changing weather conditions uh, as all fishing is. So it's going to be pretty interesting. But I did get a text right now from uh, Mr. Matty Wong with a picture of a, another giant that he caught saying, I need these girls to play some, some insider trading for you guys that uh, maybe you should pick Matty Wong this week. Don't sleep on Mr. Matty Wong, the Hawaiian Hawaiian sensation, who, by the way, had the greatest speech on the Bassmaster Classic stage. <laughs> oh. So uh, Jim's calling out Zona and the boys here. <laughs> Every Everyone, Zona and the boys start screaming about 100 pounds. The lake's always tank. Yes, it's very true. <laughs> when they brought up 100 pounds in the St. Lawrence River, when I think it was Chris Johnston won it, uh, what, it was like the one that Paul Mueller caught the eight-pound smallmouth. That was like they were saying the third day, like, oh, we're easily going to hit 100 pounds tomorrow. And then it was blowing, you know, like, six footers out of the yeah, West. Yeah. It was horrible. And, I could and, see that jinxing it and so yeah. that it could never happen. And, and side note, every time Jim Johnson picks somebody for fantasy, they tank as well, as he said multiple times in our comments. So, um, well, whoever Jim picks, I guess the status quo is do not um, pick them. And also, whoever Zona and the boys. When they start screaming about a slugfest, assume the worst. Assume the worst. <laughs> it's just simple science. It's, it's yeah. just science. <laughs> it's science. No so rhyme or reason. Just we're going to have to need science. to tip off. Uh, we're going to need to get Jim some some side cash to start picking everything that Bart picks hey. so that they all tank. I like that. I think Jim would do that just for us, to be honest. like <laughs> He seems like that kind of guy. He would, he would help us out. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. Sorry to throw you out there, but uh, we appreciate it. <laughs> Dude, of looking at the rookies right now, so guys, for folks tuning in, Gary should be joining us here pretty soon. But um, of the Bassmaster rookies right now, is there anyone that's kind of standing out to you? Obviously, Jason Kurtz leading the rookie of the year standings, but is there someone that's kind of like standing out in terms of one, just public display, but two, maybe what you've seen on live or seeing them do on stage? That's a good question. Um, I, I think for me, hands down, it's Maddie Wong. Yeah, Maddie Wong uh, at the St. John's had a heck of a tournament. You even got to see him have a little bit live. Um, for yeah, somebody, for somebody who has so little experience bass fishing in like relative terms, right? He qualified the Elite Series in what three? years maybe four years of like ever yeah. bass fishing and like black and white graphs on his past boat like um it it's just crazy where he's at and once he gets it all dialed in he's gonna be very dangerous so but uh, another surprise is what cody huff is not like living up to expectations to this point i think we would say i i would expect 
and I hope I'm true with this, is you'll watch him break out now that they're out of Florida because yeah. Florida's it's Florida's a different just, animal. And I know he didn't have a great toy no, yeah, Toyota at um the Ozarks that Deacon fished. But you also gotta think that was like in the midst of all the Florida tournaments, probably didn't have his mind on it, probably didn't get enough practice. Uh yeah, that's funny. Um <laughs> So I I, th- I would I would watch for Cody Huff to make a big resurgence, um, but I'm also curious to see how Jay Shakurit yeah. kind of keeps going throughout this season, how he can manage it. Yeah, I think um, as the electronics come to play more, you might start seeing Jake Shakurit kind of pull away, and that's just my honest opinion. He he's from up north. He knows electronics. He knows how to catch him in all phases. He's gonna so- finish the season at home. And he's going to finish the season at home. That's a very dangerous recipe. Now, somebody basically resurrected their career a couple years ago going back home up north in Seth Fighter. So um, it seems to be like a wake-up call. Not even a wake-up call. Like, here I am. I'm here to stay. Watch out type calls, what I'm saying. Yeah. We have a uh, comment here from Kyle Schmidt where he say he said either Matty Wong or Tyler Rivette. And while Tyler Rivette is not a rookie, I want to say that Tyler Rivette is coming into his own. Yeah, he's very finally figuring and, it out. I shouldn't say very slowly, but slowly and very quietly, yeah. he is becoming more and more consistent. Yeah, I mean, he brought some decent bags to the classic stage on a fishery yeah. that is very unlike his backwoods Louisiana boy type of style. <laughs> and I was talking yeah. to him one night at the classic, and he was basically, I basically straight up asked him, like, dude, you're getting more consistent. And he's like, well, dude, I get the I get to ride with Brock Mosley. I get to ride with Hank Cherry. That's who his travel buddies are. And basically, it was just saying, like, for a couple of years there, I was just trying so hard to do what they were doing, what they were teaching me, instead of doing what I do, like learning exactly what they're telling me, what they're teaching me, but still doing my style. Once he started doing his style and taking into account what they're saying and kind of mixing that with his way of, of fishing, he's starting to come into his own now. Mm-hmm. It can be pretty cool. I mean... I don't know, maybe this year if anyone shakes out for it, but I mean, you could see maybe see some next year or the years coming, next few years at least, to see a, a win from Tyler Rivette in his first blue trophy. Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, at some point this year, it could happen for him. He's just, he seems to be catching them everywhere. He's, he's almost guaranteed to be like a day three cut now. It's almost yeah. nobody's picking him in fantasy, and it might be a good, like, Oh, I don't know who I should pick in this bucket. Let's grab Tyler because he's just consistent. He'd be a good safe pick for fantasy fishing going Even, forward. He made I feel day like. three in the St. Lawrence last year. Yeah. Louisiana boy. Yeah. Small math. Give him some spinning rods and they might be lost the first time, but give them three times and they're right on the ball. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, he's, it's going to be pretty interesting. I I bet you, I bet you they go back to Gunnersville next year. Like probably a little, I'm going to guess maybe later that when, when Coop fall won, when there's, when there's some good grass, and I bet you that's the style of event that Tyler would win. Yeah. Cause he's a flipper. He's a damn good flipper. Mm-hmm. Could be very intriguing. Uh, something else I'm intrigued about is the Bassmaster open on Cherokee coming up. Now, I don't know much about Cherokee, but it's a very intri- uh, intriguing time of year to be having an event on Cherokee. Uh, is Cherokee the one with a bunch of smallmouth, or is that Douglas? That's the one that Matt Robertson won to qualify for the Classic last year. Um, 
it's basically one of the Highland Reservoirs in Kentucky. No, not Kentucky. Yeah. It, it's in Tennessee. It's Tennessee? right up. Yeah, it's actually really close to it's like, like right on the border, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's. I believe it's still a Tennessee River, like a TVA lake. The way they draw water through it and etc. But um, yeah, I'm, it'll be interesting to see. I'm, I'm excited about that one. One that I'm really excited about, and I'm more intrigued on the sense of work and that the fact they get to go down to this event. Uh, but in two weeks, I get to go down to work the Major League Fishing's Red Crest in Grand Lake at the end of March. The yeah. weather's looking nice. You might see some big fish caught on Grand. You might see some tornadoes. I hope not. <laughs> Whatever hotel I'm at has a shelter. <laughs> Or I'm calling up Evers and I'm like, save me. Yeah, like you're you're crawling into like prime nader season in the Midwest once you start getting the end of March. So I'll be uh, saying some good prayers for you out there. Um, but yeah, it's gonna be an interesting event. I hope Red Crest. I hope the expo turns out to what they are hoping it will be, because in all reality, it would be really good for the sport to have a couple marquee events with very large expos because it just gives a lot of little guys who buy the booth space and spend the money to showcase local product that you might not even know about by following Instagram or Facebook or looking at tackle shops. It gives them the opportunity to give their bait, get their baits into people's hands. And it allows a lot of people to connect and meet people. And it's really a great thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it get one, I mean, you can go down the whole ladder, right? I mean, it gives more companies opportunities to yeah. you know, present their stuff, gives their pros more opportunities for working, to work for what they're being paid. Um, and then more people, it's like you just said, and more people get a chance to uh, showcase themselves. Yeah. So I, I'm intrigued because they opened it up to fishing and hunting. So I'm interested to see what that looks like. Uh, I've seen the list of like what companies are going to go, and it seems pretty big, but I guess we'll kind of see who's going to put on what sort of deal, you know, what kind of, you know, deals are going to be, I should say, of sorts of promotions are going to be going on, being that a bunch of people did them at the Classic. So that would be kind of interesting. But I do hope now that, you know, the elites have had their schedule that them and Major League Fishing won't have a conflicting schedule. Yeah. Uh, because I will say it was kind of I, – I wish a bunch of my our MLF buddies were at the Classic. But, yeah. 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 That would have been nice. But it, it is what it is. I mean, like, there's nothing you can do about scheduling conflicts. They're going to happen as you get more marquee tournament trails and events, even sporting events. Like, yeah, NHL and NBA finals seem to overlap now as well. So even though they're different sports, they're two marquee events that are overlapping. So it it's going to happen more and more as we go and trying to condense and squeeze more things into schedules. It's unfortunate, but it happens. Yeah. Either way, I'm excited to get down to Grand Lake and go see all my buddies, my MLF buddies that are going to be competing. And I'm just intrigued to see Grand Lake at the end of March. And we have joining in the queue now, Mr. Gary Klein. And uh, we will bring him into the stream here because I'm intrigued. I want him to confirm if we're going to be okay with this tornado deal. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> let's let's bring him on, Mr. Gary Klein. How are you, sir? Hey, pretty good, Bailey. Thanks for having me on. Good evening. Yeah, it's good to get you on here. I know we've yeah, had the opportunity to to hang with each other a little bit, but uh, 
Gary, this is my co-host Andrew, who uh, is a co-host of the Serious Andrew. Andrew podcast. Good and uh, Andrew brought up a interesting point for the Red Crest coming up here about uh, it might be primetime tornado season. Do we look like we're in the clear? <laughs> hey, I tell you, Red Crest is going to be a really big deal for us. Uh, everybody's worked really, really hard on it. And, you know, this is the opportunity that we have to show the world our championship. And it's the first opportunity that we've had. And uh, everybody's worked really hard on it. We're sold out. It's going to be really, really a great event. And there's a lot of really cool stuff planned. Yeah, I would say, like, when MLF was becoming to fruition with the Bass Pro Tour, you guys, like, had, like, the worst – like conditions in terms of what that was going on in the world thrown at you with COVID and all these changing, like what nobody's seen it. You can basically are against all odds. Yeah. You guys are still here. Well, yeah, we're still here and we're still moving forward. Uh, yeah, there were some setbacks, but everybody had to deal with those setbacks. And that was right. one of the really cool things about major league fishing. We were, our team could adapt mm-hmm. and we did adapt. And uh, the really cool thing is that we're on the right track. We've got the right format it is the future of competitive angling uh, with our catchway release format. So we're all excited about that. And this is an opportunity for us to show our fans a championship, a showcase championship event without having, you know, physically bringing fish into the, into the Coliseum. Yeah. I'm super excited. And I I'm looking forward to seeing you down there, Gary, and kind of seeing what it's all going to look like. Because at one, I mean, um, two from just an angler standpoint, and someone that just enjoys all of bass fishing, I'm intrigued to see you know takeoff for for the Bass Pro Tour and for yeah. Red Crest to be the first one I'll see. So I'm pretty intrigued and excited to see all that. Yeah, it's, it's going to be pretty cool. Hey, I apologize about being late to the podcast, but I'm actually in Tom Lang's office. I'm here at Texas Parks and Wildlife at the Fish Hatchery in Athens. Oh, wow! And <laughs> if you walk through that door and go down the aisle. They have what they call the lunker bunker. Uh oh. <laughs> All these share lunkers that have been, you know, caught over the last few weeks here in the state of Texas. Dude, there's a 17, there's a 15, a 16, about <laughs> seven or eight, 13 to 14 and a half that I've got to look at. And I mean, they're literally, they're just right down that aisleway. And it's pretty cool. And in the bunker, they have two that are probably over 18. Oh, my so, God. Uh, yeah, and I've got Kelly Jordan and Alton Jones and Alton Jr. Uh, they're also uh, they're they're all eating dinner. But uh, what we were actually involved in, we're doing a fundraising uh, uh, two day event with a lot of the donors for Texas Parks and Wildlife and the Freshwater Fishery, and we we're taking them fishing on a really uh, it's a hundred acre private lake. It's called Lake X, mm-hmm. and Lake X is where I caught my personal best two years ago. It was a thirteen seventy nine. So, you know, the program that Texas is doing here is really cool. Um, and it's actually the envy of a lot of state agencies across the country. So it's exciting. It to be, oh, yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's amazing now because bass fishing is getting better, not worse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was always one of the main things. You know, if you want to talk about me and my career, I've evolved with the industry. I've evolved with the sport. And that was the thing, you know, back in the, uh, I was introduced to competitive angling in 1973. I was a sophomore in high school. But the moment I experienced that, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I had no idea if I was going to be able to make it. But as I started my career, the industry was evolving. So, you know, the 
the equipment today versus what we had 43 years ago has completely changed, but it's for the better. We have equipment now where anglers can go and fish all day and not have to worry about any malfunctions the way yeah. we did when we were, you know, growing up. Uh, <laughs> More tools you know, you're know if you're going to get back to the trailer or not. <laughs> and, and the point that I'm trying to make is that we have more anglers that are fishing. We have young anglers that are getting involved in the sport. And the cool thing about bass fishing, it's a family orientated sport or hobby, however you want to look at it. But in bass fishing, you can become as good as you want to become. There's, it's a lot of hard work. You know, you just don't go and dethrone a Kevin Van Dam overnight. It'll take 30 years to, you know, have those type of credentials. But what I like about it is that there's no age limit. Anybody that gets involved in fishing, especially at a young age, it brings their family in. Mm-hmm. Because a young angler can't really travel around and fish unless their parents are involved. And it's an outdoor experience. But the challenge that we have with our fisheries across the country is that we're not building any new reservoirs. Our reservoirs that we have are aging. We have more anglers that are fishing for those fish. We have better educated anglers that are fishing for those fish. So the challenge that I've taken up on, of course, you know, Bailey, you know that, you know, we've created the Major League Fishing and Fisheries Management Division. Yeah. And that was my sole purpose is to preserve our fisheries because over my my career, I've had so many days on the water where I slide the boat on the trailer and I just go, wow, nobody will ever believe what just happened to me today. You know, how many big ones I caught and numbers and all that. I want to have our new anglers and our young anglers have those same experiences because that's what gets you sucked into fishing. Um, Yeah, we like to catch fish, but we like to catch big fish. We like to catch numbers. And uh, so that it's a challenge that we have before us. And that's the cool thing about Texas Parks and Wildlife. You know, they started the uh, Sherry Lunker program in 86. And today, I don't know if any more were entered today. We've all been out fishing, but there's been like 627 Sherry Lunkers over 13 pounds that have been entered uh, into this program. And right here at Lake Fork, where we just had our last, uh, um, I think it was our stage two major league fishing event. Just Lake Fork alone has produced almost 300 out of that 600. And it's, it is, the numbers are staggering, but now they've taken all those offspring and they've spread them out across the country. So now all these lakes in the state of Texas, I mean, you can go catch you a 10, 13, 14, 15 pound fish. So it's exciting and it's something to go out and fish for. But no, I think that's something that we all, everybody that's involved in this sport, you know, we all get involved in this sport for different reasons and we need everybody you know, it's got to be a big family. Right. I choose to be a competitive angler. Um, but, you know, there's so many people that love fishing that don't like to compete, but they love the art and the enjoyment and being in the outdoors. They get involved with the industry or uh, there's so many different aspects. I mean, it's a huge industry and fishing is is absolutely fun. Yeah, it's there's so many different factors and there's so many questions that I have after that. I mean, I think first question I have is what do Andy and I have to do to come fish Lake X? Like what, what, what price are we talking here? What a line in this place. I got the combo to the gate. (laughs) So we're going to Gary's house. I got the combo to the gate. Really in the state of Texas, there's so many other good fisheries to fish. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, look at OHIV. Yeah. And that's about an hour and a half from the house. 
but there, I could name 20 good lakes in the state of Texas. There's so many good lakes right here in East Texas that you really don't hear about and people catch the big fish and they don't really want to publicize them. Yeah. But uh, all, all this stuff, is, you know, KJ's backyard and he's kept it quiet for years. That's awesome. And we, so here's an interesting question here. We have a comment on the live stream, the chat board of uh, Austin saying it's hard to keep some kids involved with some of the fisheries being, he says bad, but uh, there's definitely more difficult fisheries around the country. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that is why Texas has such a healthy population of anglers is because one, there's so many different lakes, but two, the fishing is so good in Texas that it keeps more people engaged. Well, without a doubt. I mean, we have a, a, a tremendous amount of uh, uh, out-of-state activity. Everybody comes to Texas and plans their, their vacation, you know, basically fishing here in the state of Texas. But when I grew up, it, it, and even to this day, like today, I was on Lake X, and I probably caught, I don't know, in my boat, 100 crappie. I mean, I just love to catch fish. And the crappie were biting real good. They were deep. 35 foot and they were either the real nice slabs but my guys just enjoyed catching crappie you know watching them on the active target and just reeling them in it was, it was pretty cool but growing up i mean i just didn't have to catch bass i mean i fished for everything mm-hmm. and i think as a young kid fishing they just want to feel the bite whether it's a sunfish a catfish uh, a gar a striper it doesn't matter so i think it's real important that for somebody that's getting introduced to the sport by somebody else that see, if, let me just say this, if a young angler was to fish with me, I'd probably bore him so bad that he would probably never want to go bass fishing again. <laughs> Seriously, because I don't talk. I just focus on fishing and you know, I'm, everything's going on. So I have to really pay attention when I have somebody in my boat that has never really been exposed to fishing. I can't go out and just go hundred percent. I've got to really understand that because I want them to get hooked too. So I'll use, I'll, I'll use, a, uh, use a technique that I think that they're real comfortable with and that they'll get bites. And then once they start saying, hey, man, I wish I'd catch a bigger one, or man, I wish I could catch more, now they're on the path of learning. And boy, I'll tell you, once you start asking yourself, how can you do it, then you're hooked. Yeah. yeah. Gary opens his rod locker and be like, it's a whole new world. Let me show you. <laughs> Bailey I've hasn't seen one of these before. Last time I was with you neither. I still got it loaded up. <laughs> yeah. So Gary, I've gotten the pleasure and uh, the privilege to share a boat with you. And honestly, towards the end of it, I almost, I stopped fishing at one point because you were going down almost memory lane, talking with Nathan and I kind of talking old stories. And I was so intrigued that, I didn't want to fish because I wouldn't miss any of the details of some of the story because you're a great storyteller. And one thing I'd like to, to bring up too, just to kind of, for one myself, uh, but also for the listeners is you said you, you'd gotten your start into tournament fishing as a sophomore in high school. But uh, before we start really going do, too deep into it, like who, who got you started in fishing in the first place? And what, what did that look like for you? Well, I was raised on the shores of little ponds and lakes in Northern California by my my parents. And literally, I grew up with a bobber and a little fork stick, you know, sitting on the bank. But in Northern California, we also had the Sacramento River and the Feather River. So every May and June, we had a shad run. Basically, what they called them was poor man's tarpon. They were about three to five and a half pounds. 
And I mean, we caught the fire out of those. Uh, and then we'd have a big striper run that would come up out of the San Francisco Bay and the Sacramento River. And I fish cut bait for stripers an awful lot too. So really it was without a doubt, it was my mom and my dad. And we just didn't go fishing every now and then. We went fishing every weekend. We camp. I mean, I grew up, half my childhood was uh, in a sleeping bag underneath the pine trees. I mean, we're always in Northern California. Um, and I caught a lot of trout. I mean, I weighed the streams for trout. But that was just, that's how we as a family uh, grew up. You know, Friday, uh, mom and dad were off of work. And we would come back Sunday night to the house and get ready for school and all that. So that's how I got my start. But like in high school, I loved to hunt. And where I was raised, I was raised in the north end of Sacramento Valley out in the rice fields. So I had pheasants, ducks, and geese. And I hunted a shotgun an awful lot, but then I also fished. And I really growing up like any other young kid, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, but I knew that something that I wanted to pursue would is something that I was satisfied, something that would make me happy. And uh, my whole family is Cal Fire. My brothers, my grandfather, my dad, my uncles were all California Division of Forestry or U.S. Forest Service. So that was kind of my path, um, you know, to go into the Forest Service. And I actually had taken the physical and was hired. And then I found a job at Bidwell Canyon Marina pumping gas. And I thought, man, that's going to be a lot better than fighting fires. So I took that job instead of being a summer firefighter. And that's what led me to being introduced to competitive angling. And when I saw guys paying $25 and winning 500 for the weekend, when you're young, you think, man, I can win a tournament every weekend. Mm -hmm. I'm that good. <laughs> and of course, you know, since then, I've learned this is a very humbling sport. No matter who you are, how good you think you are, it changes all the time, which is also a very intriguing part of this sport. And one of the hardest things for anglers, especially in the competitive world, to understand fishermen, how can I say this politely? I know a lot of really good fishermen, very talented. They can catch them. They're really, really good, but they will never become great anglers. And what I simply mean by that is not that they don't have the skills to elevate to the next level. What they lack is the understanding of what it takes to get to that level of fishing uh, in competitive is what I'm talking about. Um, they have that ability. They just got to dive deeper. All the battles that they will have will come from within themselves. And that's why, uh, and Bailey, you probably know it a little bit more than Andrew does, but I'm a loner. I kind of, I'm off by myself. I don't run in big crowds. I don't like to listen to a lot of fishing talk because I like to break a lake down on my own time of year, type of lake, main species of fish, and current conditions. Because all anglers have strengths and weaknesses that we all do. And I'm, I have a lot of really good strengths, but I also have weaknesses. And those weaknesses are techniques that I know I just choose not to fish them. You know, I, yeah. you can't do it all in a day. That's right. I have to do what I like to do. And, you know, if I get defeated, then I have to go back and evaluate why I just got my brains beat out at the last event. And it's usually always boils down to decisions. 
you know, where to go, how long to stay in, in your game plan. And I like to go back and study that and try to help myself for the next event. But I have all the confidence in the world in myself. A lot of these great anglers that I was talking about, as they evolve in the competitive world, they have a network. And if they go to a lake, they're going to make a couple phone calls and they're going to talk to their buddy because he's a guide on the lake or he fishes the lake all the time. And, you know, Joe knows where they are. So when they show up at that event, they're fishing Joe's information, they're fishing Joe's fish. And if they do, or if they are successful in that event, then they have to lay their head on the pillow at night. They know why they were good, why they were successful. And it didn't come from within. And that's okay on a local level. But if you try to do that on a national level, you'll get your brains beat out because we fish so many bodies of water across this country You've got to learn it yourself and understand it yourself. So one of my key things or advice wise to somebody that is really wanting to become a competitive angler is to understand yourself, fish who you are. And if you have weaknesses and you think you need to get better with those, study them, fish them, go out and understand them and fish it. You know, one thing that I've always said, there's no right way. There's no wrong way to fish. It should be your way. And if your way doesn't work, then take the time and study it, understand it, and make the changes. And then you never have to think about it again. It's like, Bailey, if you ask me, what are the best knots? I tie three. I don't need to learn how to tie any more knots because right. those are, you know, my braid splice, my braid knot, and my fluorocarbon knot. I mean, they work. They never mm -hmm. let me down. So I don't ever have to think about that again. Same thing with rod actions, reels. And you can even carry that to boats, motors, electronics, trolling motors, the whole, the whole you know, package. Because once you get all of that stuff taken care of, the most important thing I think that is the most overlooked is the fish itself. Most anglers do not study the habits of a bass. They don't understand Clear water fish are sight feeders. Off-colored or dirty water fish are labral line feeders. Mm -hmm. Hey, to me, it means everything because that right there will really key me in on some of the techniques that I'm going to use for that, that water body. And it's also going to key me in on the, on the lures that I'm going to use. Tight wobble, wide wobble, you know, silent lures. Uh, and it also keys me in on how accurate I have to be with my casting. Clear water... If you're fishing around bushes, I don't have to be accurate. All I have to do is make a long cast and get over by the bush, and the fish will come out of the bush to get the bait. But if I've been off-colored water, I may have to pitch right side, left side, front, back, down the middle before I get the bite. Um, that is the type of understanding I'm trying to, to say good anglers, great anglers. You know, elevate. They, they, they have the ability to elevate themselves if they want to put forth the effort. It sounds like a lot of situational awareness is what separates Huge. the good Huge. from the great. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Hey, the bottom line, there's one thing in fishing that will never change. I don't care if you have forward imaging, you have side scan, you have down scan, you've got $20,000 of electronics on your boat. You still have to tie a lure on the end of the line to make a cast catch fish. Mm -hmm. And the hardest fish to catch is one that won't bite. Yeah. So, you know, you're always, always going to be faced with that. Yeah. <laughs> so you made a, a really good point there too. And do you think that 
I mean, I, I know for a fact I, I've seen it that there's a lot of really dang good anglers from a regional standpoint. And the reason why some of them don't do well on the national scale, say like a different part of the country, right? They don't do as well as because they're fishing what is the norm or the, the dock talk for that area versus going into it, fishing what, like you, like you say, their way. Well, exactly. And, they, and that's what I call zip code fishermen. They have their region of four or five lakes and they compete on those lakes at a club level or regional level over and over and over and over. And what they do is they learn the lake. Mm-hmm. And to have the knowledge of the lake without the knowledge of the fish based on time of year type lake and current conditions and main species of fish doesn't work. So when you take them out of their zone and you put them on a national tour like what we do, where most of us don't even have opportunity to pre-practice because we're so busy with our schedules, we show up, spend a couple of days on the water, and then we compete. We're competing for the fish. I'm not, I don't need to learn the lake. Now, don't get me wrong. There's many, many times where I get a, a deal going, a pattern going, and I always tell them, man, I wish I really knew this lake. I wish I knew where there was more of this stuff. But here's another thing that most people don't understand. The amount of study that anglers like myself, and I can name off many of our guys, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of Google and research. And, you know, you can go to Google and look at the history of the lake. And I mean, at night, every night before I go to bed, I debrief myself about my day, whether it's a practice or a competition day, and I study the map. I always spend a couple hours before I turn the lights off trying to figure out, okay, wind direction for tomorrow. What's the pattern? Here's some new stuff I need to look at because that's another thing that I've learned in major league fishing. I hate to fish behind myself. I like to run new water all the time, especially when we're fishing in the cups. You know, there's no practice. You show up, you go. Um, I feel that I'm my own worst enemy to fish behind. I don't like to fish behind me. And if I do, that means I got an area that's got a huge concentration of fish in it. You know, but I don't like to run down the same bank multiple times during the course of the day unless there's a migration that's going on. Um, that's such a good point. I, I am so much more like mentally like, okay, fishing behind someone else. But if I knew I just went down that bank, I feel like it's a lost cause. I would run away. Yeah. Personally, <laughs> I would I would just run the other side of the lake. I'm like, I... I almost never fish the same thing twice unless there's a good bite happening. But let me just add something else. And, 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 you know, I'm just talking, okay? And I'm not trying to – I'm just trying to throw stuff out to get the listeners maybe to grasp something and start building on it. Yeah. For example, one thing that you always hear me talk about is that bass are conditioned by their environment. Clear water, dirty water, cold, warm, the bait fish. If they're on shad, they look up. If they're on crayfish, they look down. That helps you with your techniques. In saying all that, bass anglers are conditioned by their environment. Okay? The difference between us and a fish is that we have total control of our environment to some extent. It's like me. I love being around positive people. I do not like being around negative people. I just, you know, 
That's just my personality. I want if something is it, yeah, fishing's tough. But if it's tough, that's mean that means you're just that close to figuring it out, to really, really getting the deal dialed in. Um, I like to look at things on the right side all the time when it comes to fishing. And yeah, I mean, I I've had it handed me many, many times. And I've dished it out a little bit myself, you know, over the years. But this sport is so intriguing to me because, like I said, there's no limits. You can really perfect it in, in whether you want to fish regional. I mean, I know a lot of really good friends of mine that fish local right here in the state of Texas. And they win a bunch of money. And they're good anglers. Mm-hmm. They just choose not to go across the country because they all have businesses and jobs. Right. And plus, they know what the life is like you know, when you're traveling. Um, anyhow, I forgot the point that I was about to make on that, but it, it, I could talk for weeks about an angler getting better at fishing, you know, trying to get better. Um, when it comes to rods, reels, lines, lures, knots, boats, electronics, trolling motors, to a new angler that's just, you know, putting his toe in the water, should be no less than about three years to figure all that out. You know, we all, uh, one question that's always asked is how come Boyd Duckett has so many different rods, you know, gazillion actions, et cetera, et cetera. Well, humans are different heights, different arm lengths. Uh, Some like to fish more aggressive. Some like to fish more casual and fishing rods are not just the, not just designed to catch fish, to reel a fish in. In fact, really, that's kind of the lesser of it. A really good fishing rod is designed to present a fishing lure to a fish to make it bite, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You see, you, you know, you see a lot of guys that talk, oh, man, my body, man, I'm just worn out. My elbows from casting. Dude, I'm 64 years old. And I've never had an issue at all. Because I let the rod cast. I let I load and let the load throw the lure, not my body. Um, just little things like that. But it yeah. but it takes practice. And you have to practice out of your office. If you're a bank fisherman or a kayak fisherman, or you know, you got a big platform or a high platform, a walleye boat. I mean, you your angle of your cast is different, you know, just on your build, your length of arms. So that's one of the reasons why there's so many different rods. Uh, yeah. You think about gear retrieves, gear ratios. You know, I'm just going to throw this one out there to get our listeners thinking. A gear retrieve, and I'll use Ducket. We have the, the Paradigm line of reels. Mm-hmm. We have three gears, uh, a 6.3, a 7.3, and an 8.3. And I think I missed that, but it's pretty close. All the gear ratio is is inches per turn of the handle. That's all it is. So if you put your rod tip on a mark in your garage and put your lure out there and you turn the handle one time, just measure your inches per turn of the handle. It might be 23, it might be 27, it might be 28. I'm leading you down a path, Andrew. I'm getting your mind to think. Okay. A level wine reel has a spool. Mm-hmm. And I like to keep my spools full for my thumb. My thumb rests. Rest, I can cast better with a full spool than I can with a reduced spool. But here's the other thing, too. 
a lot of people don't realize, or, or I, I have a lot of them ask me the question, what is it? Why do I get bit right at the butt? You know, right there, man, I just have one bite my bait. This is what happens, folks. When you make a long cast with your level wind reel and say you're reeling a crankbait, isn't it fair to say that on a long cast, you've reduced the size of your spool because all your lines out on the cast. So now when you start your retrieve, that spool starting to fill up. And what are you doing? You're increasing your inches per turn of the handle. Mm -hmm. So now you have a lure that started out, the fish are on it, tracking it. It's speeding up, speeding up, speeding up. You're standing on a platform. It could be a dock or your bass boat with a big shadow casted underneath it. It's cover. You're real, 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 real. And all of a sudden, you have to break action on that crankbait to bring it up to make a cast. As soon as it breaks action, that fish chokes on it. It's because he's, it's going to get away from you. There's that shadow and you break action and bingo. Okay. But now if you know that, wouldn't it also be fair to say that I can make a cast, say I have a, 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 a reel full of 10 pound and I reel. Now I have a reel full of 25 and I make that cast. Isn't it fair to say that I'm going to pick my spool up quicker with a larger diameter line so I can increase that. But that's also another part of the equation that anglers need to realize is that you have fluorocarbons, monofilaments, braids, um, and they're all different. The characteristics of the line are all different. And Bailey, you know, you're with me at Berkeley. You know the extent that goes into everything that they manufacture in Spirit Lake, Iowa. Mm -hmm. I mean, and the guys are awesome. But those lines are all built different. You know, monofilament line floats, braid floats, fluorocarbon sinks. So if I'm fishing a real slow topwater bait, I'm not going to throw it on fluorocarbon because the fluorocarbon is going to sink and halfway through my chug, it's going to start pulling my bait under. Where, you know, braid floats also has less stretch than, than all of them. So you just have to learn the, the characteristics of the tools that you have, you know, available to use an angler. Uh, I like fluorocarbon an awful lot because it does sink. So when I'm fishing a drop shot or casting out deep, instead of having a big bow, it sinks almost straight to your bait. So I have more of a direct, you know, contact. But when I start talking about gear ratios, um, I'm just trying to get everybody to think because Bailey, the question or the point that I was going to make earlier about anglers being conditioned and fish being conditioned, if you watch most anglers in a bass boat, most anglers do the same thing. They run the boat the same way, and they always position the boat the same way. Most anglers that I see, even ones I compete against, an awful lot of them, will fish from deep to shallow. You know, they'll meter over a, a hump in 15 feet of water, and they'll park out in 35 feet of water and throw to the hump. Say there's a big school of fish on that hump and they're very active. You know, you roll there first thing in the morning at your starting spot of your tournament. You both throw your Carolina rigs out there, bang, double fours. And you're reeling in. You guys are all excited like that. And you just suck the entire school out of 15 feet off of that hump out underneath the boat in 35 feet of water. And you put those fish in live and you fire back out to the point and you sit there for an hour thinking, dang, man, I wonder what happened. You know, they're, they're not biting. Well, the way I like to fish places like that is uphill. 
So instead of pulling the fish out in open water, when I catch them, I pull them up into the shallower water and I can catch more of them. Mm. It just how you position the boat. But the point I was going to make about anglers being conditioned. Remember what I said earlier, you have to tie a lure on the end of the line to catch a fish. If I was the fish with you, Andrew, if I was the fish with you, Bailey, just let me sit in the back of your boat and let me take notes. And you could take me to some of the best water that you, I mean, go catch them. And I'm just going to watch you fish and I'm going to take notes. I can change the way you fish. Say you go down a bank and I watch you catch 15 fish down that bank. Okay. And you think, man, that man, they're biting this lure really good. I could probably turn you around. Just say, okay, oh, hold it. Turn you around and tie a completely different lure on the end of your line. Take off your secret lure or the one that you've been catching the fish on. And tie on a completely different lure and watch you go back down that bank and maybe catch 15 more. And the reason why I say that is that a lure is a tool. You know, depth and speed. Anglers make different casts with different lures. But what I did is I forced you to position the boat differently now, because instead of throwing that spinnerbait, catch them off, you know, the shallow water stumps and logs, I just tied on a, a dredger, you know, a 17.5 dredger, and you're not going to fish that around the timber. So it's going to force you now to position the boat different and go back through that area that you know has got fish and catch more of those, basically just teaching you how to use your tools but uh, never fall in love with a lure. Uh, and every time you catch a fish, understand that there is probably half a dozen other lures you could have thrown to catch that same fish. Yeah. And so we have in the comments here too, and that's another really great point from that you made is how underrated angles are in fishing. Oh, angles are everything. And, and, and that's one of the things you know, I've got active target. I've got a Lawrence double 12s on the front. I've got active target on my top unit. And I have uh, just a traditional transducer on my other one. So I'm looking down and I'm looking in front. Yeah, I see fish and everything. But what I like about being able to see in front of the boat is so I can fish those angles. And I position the boat. Like I said, I'm an uphill fisherman. So a lot of the times when you see me going down the bank and I'm up tight against the bank, it's going to throw out. Or I'm fishing a point and I'm going to pull up on that point and slice the pie. I'm not going to fish it shallow to deep. I'm going to fish it deep to shallow. When I get bit, I can pull the fish up. And it's amazing. I go from pulling up on a spot and catching one or two to pulling up on a spot and catch 15, 20. Same school. I just pulled them up shallower. Yeah, I may have to change some of my tools, you know, but it's, that's what makes it fun. We got some guys, if you just study them on the footage, I mean, I do. I mean, I've, I've, I've watched every major league fishing. I watch it because of production, then I also watch it because I'm learning from the anglers. Mm -hmm. And there's things that those guys do that maybe they don't even know that they do them. It just blows me away. I mean, it just you can watch their cadence change. You can watch how they position the boat. You can tell if an angler... Uh, is very excited about the day or he's got momentum or you can tell if he's getting his brains beat out just by his demeanor standing there in the boat. I mean, yeah. you just, you can watch the highs and lows. Yeah. And that's Andy and I have talked countless times of how many, 
how many guys fishing right now are like yourself that we'd love to just get in the boat with, not to bring rods, but like you mentioned earlier, bring a notepad. I mean, I, I last year was the first time I was ever a co-angler. I did uh, I did a couple Toyotas up north and also yeah. did the opens. And that was one of the things I was telling Andy is like, I'd love to just bring a notepad over a rod just because you're going to learn a lot from depending on who you draw. I mean, you can learn from everyone, but there's obviously there's certain oh guys gosh, you can learn yeah. a lot more from. But that was yeah. one of the things we had as well is just – and was somebody we were on the show recently brought up the whole – when you don't want to bring, like when you're on a school of fish, you don't want to bring that whole school at your boat. Like say if you're sitting out deep, throwing deep and you bring that school to you and you kind of ruin the bite where if you okay. sit and you bring cast uphill, how you, you have better chances of those fish turning around and getting more shots at them because they're. Well, if you think about it, you know, the fish are predators. They live in an eat and be eaten world and they're kind of at the top of the food chain, but they love to ambush their food. Mm-hmm. So basically what I have been taught is kind of what we call the funnel effect. So basically what I'm doing when I have my boat set up is I'm using the contour of the bottom to funnel those fish up shallower. So I'm pushing them, you know, they're, if they're, if they're on my bait, they're coming shallow. So I'm forcing that fish to make a decision whether to bite it or to turn away from it. And usually they get it. Yeah. So kind of not, not to change subjects completely, but something you'd mentioned a little while back is, you know, the life of a tournament angler. And I had this conversation with a good buddy of ours, Chris Grow, who's now fishing the, the pro circuit. Um, and just how a lot of people look at professional bass fishing as this glorious dream, which I think it is to a lot of people, right. but that it's not as uh, easy or I say as much of a dream as glamorous, I think is the word you're looking there for. You go, Andrew. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is not a glamorous lifestyle. No. And, and that's mm-hmm. one thing that I really admire about you, Gary is one that your work ethic, because you're one of the longest tenured anglers in the sport right now. And what I love about it is like when we went on that trip in Florida in January, you were the last one off the water every single day, which I loved about it because we had Shane LeHue and Joseph Webster there, two youngsters in the sport, and you were you were you refused to get off the water until it was dark, and that was something I really admired. And being that you've that you've seen a lot of this sport, one thing that we're really curious about is, you know, you've, you've given a lot of advice on this show tonight already. But what is one piece of advice that has stuck with you from start to finish, not really finish, but where you're at right now that helps you every tournament or just throughout your career to get where you're at now? Well, the number one thing for me as an angler has been passion. I mean, I have a passion for fishing. And, um, you know, for me growing up, wealth was always a frame of mind. And I know a lot of very wealthy individuals that call me all the time and say, Hey, how's the fishing? (laughs) And I'm like, dang, man, how much money do you need to make? You know? Um, But I just, I was all in from in 1973. Like I said, that one event, that one weekend changed my entire life. Um, But let me also say this too, as a angler that's had a, a, a long career in fishing, I'm not done yet. I enjoy it too much is that as I evolved as an angler, you know, with success comes responsibility. And I was young and single, um, married in uh, 88, 
Uh, I have two daughters that are now 28, 25. Um, they were raised on the tournament circuit. You know, Jana homeschooled them and traveled, and they were raised with Guido Hibden's uh, or Dion and Jill's kids and uh, Alton Jones. And I mean, all the kids were together. You know, now they're all adults growing up. But it takes a family uh, because there's a tremendous amount of sacrifice that that takes place. Uh, you know, I probably missed half of my girls growing up. And, you know, because I'm on the road all the time. And uh, that part I wish I, I had back. But that's the only part that I really wish I had back. Uh, as far as the actual fishing and being involved in it, it's what I love to do. And I'll be on the water again tomorrow on Lake X. And I'll probably catch another 100 crappie. Now, I did catch about 40 bass while I was catching all those crappie. Um, but I just, I, I just enjoy being in the outdoors. And it's a challenge. But That's yeah, awesome. it's a passion for those anglers that are getting involved in this sport because it is glamorous and glory and they're looking for, you know, all this notoriety and stuff. To me, when I look at a young angler that gets involved in this sport, you know, maybe it's one year, two years, three years. I want to look at that angler in 10 years. I want to look at that angler in 15 years because that will tell you how dedicated they are. Mm -hmm. and, and in my career, I've seen a lot of guys come and go. You know, that the, the maybe two years tops and they're done because it's a very expensive sport. Uh, so you have to have a passion for it. And, yeah, it's been trying times and, you know, with everything that's going on right now. But, uh, hey, the bottom line is we're still going to go fishing. I'd much rather fish in a competition than I would walk in the bank. <laughs> they're still biting. It's still time. Oh, yeah. Somewhere they're yeah. biting. That, and they don't have to be bass. Right. I mean, I like catching everything. That's right. I think expenses aside too, you know, to, to make it and be successful in professional fishing, especially, especially professional bass fishing today, you need to have like a, a special sort of grit and a work ethic to do well consistently because you don't get days to just be lazy. Very rarely do you get days to just relax for the day. Like when you guys, when you guys in your level say today was a relaxing day for me, that usually means up at 630, rig and tackle for a while. Doing map study, dude. I don't think I've ever slept in the six thirty. Yeah, I was I was exactly. up at four thirty this morning to go crappie fishing. So yeah. I, I feel your pain, Gary. I feel your I mean, pain. That's that's just all. I don't think I've ever heard my alarm clock go off in thirty years. That's I mean, amazing. seriously, at all these terms I go to, I set my alarm clock, and I'm always up, you know, forty five minutes before the alarm clock goes off. But that's I, just my routine. That's just me, and I have the reputation of always being the first one at the ramp. Um, I like to get there early, just kind of, you know, enjoy the moment, so to speak. The quiet, the, the calm before the storm. Oh, big time. Yeah. Hey, I got to get better, man. I got to learn how to catch fish. I mean, it's, it's brutal out there. I mean, look at the anglers that we're competing against now. And a lot of it is technology. They're very tech savvy. They understand it. Um, but I'm not the type of angler. I want to get a piece of it. I mean, I'm not going to, turn my back on it. I want to learn it and understand it and, you know, use it when I need it. But that right there is the cool thing about this sport. I hate it when I see things like that. I'll, I'll bring up the Alabama rig, you know, oh man, it's too good. We got to outlaw, you know, yada, yada, yada. Dude, I was totally against outlawing the Alabama rig. To me, it was like, how cool is it to come up with something that triggers yeah. a fish like that? But yet, 
both of you guys know as well as I do that just because you have an Alabama or an A rig tied on doesn't mean you're going to catch fish with it. That's a dang fact. It's you know, so it's, situational. It's, so situational. It. It's, it's no different than when to pick a jerk bait up or when to flip a jig or when to throw a drop shot. It's just another tool. And I wish that a lot of these leagues would not have outlawed it. Yeah. That's, so this is me. I, I, if somebody I, says anything about major league fishing, I'm just one vote of many. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> because we don't allow it at major league fishing. I, I mean, I was watching, I watched as much of that fork event as I could. Cause it was, it was your people were catching giants left and right. And it was oh, super yeah. action packed. It was super fun to watch. And they, you know, like Alton, you said, is with you. He's catching him on a square bill. People were flipping. I can only imagine what would have been caught if there were a rigs allowed. I don't know if they a whole lot of rigs. standing timber would have yeah, been caught with a rigs. <laughs> but here's the sad thing, you know. I say that I look at all the footage and go back and evaluate junior championship day in the back of uh, the creek that he was in. That he had one stump that he got snagged on twice, mm-hmm. and we were trying to pop stump. off his crankbait, his fish. The first day of the event, I caught a 311 off that same stump. Wow. He, on championship day, he caught those fish where I, that's, that is exactly the area that I ran to my first, uh, my first round. And I caught a 312, a 311, like a 32 and a 511. And I was like in good shape. I was in the top group. That was uh, going into the second period. I caught a 511 the first 10 minutes. I never got a bite the rest of the day, and I stayed in that creek. Now, I had a lot of traffic, but he was smart enough to go back in there when the weather was bad, there was no locals in there, and, uh, you know, that's the cool thing about this sport. He won it off of making good decisions, smart Mm -hmm. decisions. You know, Ted, Nate, dude, I'm doing the same thing he was doing. You know, I started in there. Stephen Browning started in there. There was four of us that started in there. And he was smart enough to do what he needed and then utilize it during the championship round because these fish were coming. They were coming. And uh, my hat's off to him. And that's what I really thrive on in this sport is making good decisions, you know. And, hey, I got beat fair and square. It was pretty crazy. I did catch a 6-6 with 10 minutes to go at the end of my second round. So that helped me for heavy hitters. That buzzer beater fish, that's always – that gets yeah. the drama going on uh, on live. That's, that's always fun to watch. Dude, when I hooked her, too, I, it could have been a bigger one than that. But yeah, I'll take yeah. I'll take the 6-6 six, six and go on to the next one. Dude, yeah. you should have seen it when I flipped that five at Smith. Oh, <laughs> I was yeah. in a little pocket where I've been catching spots on a little drop shot, and there was a pile of debris that was in behind a log. And I thought, well, I only had one scoreable that day. And I figured I'm going to ease on in here, and I pitched my jig in there. And all of that debris just rolled in my line, hopped about that high. <laughs> That's amazing. That caught me a five-two out of Smith, so I was pretty proud of that. Heck yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get into some bait stuff here in a second. Not not for too long, so we don't want to keep you you know too late tonight. We just appreciate getting you on the on the show here because uh, I have a couple juicy bait stuff that I might bring up that we uh, exposed in Florida a little bit. Um, but uh, you're going to talk about something that I caught. I don't know, probably 20, 25 largemouth on it today. To, to refrain here, um, I think Bailey has told me this story 
at least 40 times. <laughs> <laughs> like every time we're like, I'm sitting and he's it like, works. you know what this is. And I'm like, yes, Bailey's like, when I was at Bienville. <laughs> yep. Because it, it's it's awesome to see it being used all over. It's not just yeah. a northern walleye bait. I mean, we're gonna get into a second, but I, I'm super curious, Gary. The uh, before we get into the bait stuff, one tournament that comes to mind, like your most memorable tournament in terms of just like something that stuck with you for the rest of your career, whether it was a win or whether it was a a loss that you had a really valuable learning lesson. What's the most memorable tournament that you've had in your career? Dude, I've had so many. Um, I've had, you know, a lot of defeats that were hard. Probably the, the, probably one of the biggest emotional roller coaster rides for me was in 2003, the Bassmasters Classic out of New Orleans. We were launching a Bayou Sinet, and I was making a long run. I fished three days of competition and executed flawlessly. I boated every bite I got had a good bag on the final day of the classic and I knew in my heart I had it won. So I got to drive, you know, an hour and a half back on water in the boat, feeling that I finally won the Bassmasters classic out of, you know, 30 something tries. I finally won it. And to live it like that was really pretty cool. So now I know how special it is to the anglers that have won it. Because for that little window, I got, I felt like I had it won. And we were staged outside the Superdump, Pee Wee would always come and look in the live wells. And he would pull all the fish up and then go from boat to boat to boat. And Pee Wee and I always had a great relationship. Bassmasters Classic, final day. He just came from Iconelli's boat, mind you. And he walked back to mine and looked like that. And I'll never forget it. He closed the live well, tapped it, gave me a thumbs up. You know, I knew then that I had it won. But, you know, I weighed in, I took the lead. I can came in and beat me by pound four ounces or pound five ounces. So for that moment, when I was on stage, I got to live winning the classic. And of course, that's the closest I've ever come to, mm -hmm. even though Mike beat me fair and square. I mm -hmm. never lost a fish. And he caught a key fish in the last couple of minutes that won the classic for him. So that's really cool in competition. It goes right down to the wire. So that was very, very memorable. Uh, but a lot of the, the memories weren't really the big fish. It was the key fish. The one that, you know, you caught that was a two and a half pounder and you just won. Mm -hmm. You know, those are the fish that kind of stick with you forever. I have a lot of night, not nightmares, but <laughs> there's some fish that are just, burned into my brain that cost me down the lake you're like oh yeah. <laughs> cost me winning the Bassmasters classic I, but anyway i won't get into those um you know i think i fished in 30 classics and i've had three of them one hands down one and i've had little hiccups and i'm not counting iconelli's you know the 2003 these are ones leading up to it so you know my challenge i i can't really say that fish right there was the fish or the memorable one, I remember flying commercial uh, back to uh, Tallahassee, Florida to compete in a BASS elite tournament. That was in 2003, too, I believe, on um, 
uh, out of Bainbridge on Lake Seminole. And I had just come from an FLW tournament on Okeechobee. I drove to Rob Newell's house, left my boat, flew home, and then I was flying back for the tournament a couple weeks later. And I remember sitting on the left side of the aircraft and we were, we were descending. So we were probably about 15,000 and I could see Seminole and I could see this brown stuff around the shoreline on a certain section of the lake. So the first morning of practice, I ran to that brown stuff and it was all dead hyacinths. Timmy Horton had given me three one ounce Tunskin weights. There were none in the country. And he gave me a bag of crickets, what he called a cricket, for flipping underneath that, that stuff. Mm-hmm. And from that first morning of practice, I felt I was going to win that event. I mean, I just, it was just, nobody was doing it. I had all that water to myself, and I ended up executing, and I, I was fortunate enough to win that. The first bite I got the first morning, I lost one about eight or nine pounds. Oh, my God. But that fish helped me win because it taught me what I needed to do to get the fish out of the hyacinths. So, you know, yeah, it was a lost fish, but it led me into the, you know, down the victory lane, I should say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those, like that, man, you just never forget them. Yeah. Never. Those lost bites are a little bit easier when you come out of it on top at the end. <laughs> a little Dude, bit, not you, too much. You still sting a little bit, but it's like. <laughs> well, it's a little I remember bit you, you know, there for a long time, you know, I roomed with Rick Klein. And, and a lot of people think that Ricky and I always talked fishing. We didn't. Ricky was a loner. And his fishing was his fishing. My fishing was my fishing. And every now and then, you know, we might throw somebody a bone about, you know, you might want to go look at this or something like that. I mean, this is just what type of angler Ricky is. I mean, um, we, we go to Bull Shoals in late fall. The lake's 30 foot low. And it looks just like Shasta and Orville, Northern California. And I mean, I did my deal. I cranked at noon. I didn't have a fish. Went back to my van, got my two little doodle rods and six pound test line. And from noon until dark, I probably had 60 bites. And I came in that night and Ricky was just curious. He said, well, how'd your day go? And I said, it was pretty tough until I figured them out. And he goes, what do you mean? And I go, yeah, I probably got about 60, 60 bites. And he said, ain't no way. I said, how many bites you get? And he goes, I got one. So the next day I ran the pattern. I mean, I just went fishing, ran the pattern, probably had over a hundred bites. And, uh, but Ricky, Ricky, you know, had not been exposed to light line fishing deep. Those fish were all 35 to 60 on channel swings. And it was, you know, the beginning of the sissy bait era is is what they were calling. (laughs) But let me say something else about clone. The first time I ever drew Rick Clun was in 1979 in the four dealers for bass tournament on Toledo Bend. It was the second day of the event. Ricky didn't have a good day and I was in contention. So Ricky just, you know, he said, Gary, where do you want me to meet you? And I told him he showed up the next day with three rods and a brown paper bag. I told him where I was going to go. It was up a bayou. I wasn't even in Toledo Bend. I was about three miles out of the lake. And it was in August. So the water was real hot. But when I got in the creek, the creek had canopies on it. So the water was in the shade. The further up the creek I went, it was just raft with shad. I mean, just there was about a three-mile section of that creek was just nothing but shad. And I was just rolling a spinnerbait. I'm making this comment because this is what started me thinking about anglers and their strengths and weaknesses and different lures. Rick Clun 
trim my engine down level so that he could sit on my cowing. I didn't have any seats in the boat. I stand up and I fish. Ricky never one time made a cast in front of the boat. Never one time did Ricky throw to the other side of the bayou, which was, I was go up one side and down the other side. He turned his back to me, fished the bank that I just came up, and I guarantee he was catching 10 to my one. Oh, my God. Literally. Catch him, catch him, catch him, catch him, catch him. Now, they weren't the size, but he was, he said, quit net my fish. You just go fishing. You know, you got a shot to win this thing. From that day on, that that taught me about different anglers, seawater different, and the use of tools. And the technique that Ricky was using, I would have never thought about it in a million years. But he was triggering those fish with a speed retrieve, and he was fishing shade line. And he'd throw in a little bitty tiny spinnerbait on a long cast, and he'd burn it out of the shade. And when it hit the sun, he'd kill it. One would have it. That's awesome. I, I bet so you at the cool. end of the day, he probably caught 35. And I think I caught 12. It was amazing. amazing. That's but he had that much respect for me as an angler not to throw to the other side. So that really got me thinking. And that's one of the cool things, too, about a co-angler. They're exposed to good and bad. Mm-hmm. But anytime you haven't, you can do this. And you, you, now that you think about it, if you stand on a dock in the morning and watch the boats go out, co-angler and pro, co-angler and pro, and if you look at their rods and pay attention, you'll notice that the co-angler will probably have different baits tied on than what the pro has tied on. They fish. Now, when they come back in at the weigh-in, you can stand on that same dock, and majority of the time, you will see the same bait tied on both rods, front and back. That's because somebody in the boat started catching fish on a certain lure and that angler wants to throw that same lure because that's what the fish are biting. Mm -hmm. That's the trap that I'm trying to explain to people. Don't get caught up in that. Now, don't get me wrong. There's sometimes when, man, if it isn't, you know, green and it's got six black flakes on it. I mean, that's the way I am. um, I'm not going to get a bite. I get like that, too. But sometimes it doesn't matter. I mean, sometimes you can tie a pink worm on and fire it out there and they're going to eat it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. So, Fish. Yeah. <laughs> Fish, man. Um, yeah. So another, another, speaking of a bait that, uh, you know, went crazy with catching a lot of fish, I think uh, <laughs> it's time to talk about a bait that's quickly in the past year made a staple in my arsenal. And a lot of it is thanks to you. And, and it's a bait that a lot of people tribute to walleye. And more the Midwest, maybe some smallmouth in the north. But I watched you wax them down in Florida in the grass. And I'm talking about – I'll have it, have it right here for the folks if I don't hit my microphone. Uh, the Berkeley Snap Jig. Yep. It is such a not-talked-about sleeper bait. And yep. I would love for you, Gary, to dive in on kind of why this thing's the juice. Well, the, 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 one of the key things about the snap jig is directional change. And, it, and whether you hop it hard or if you just sweep the rod, it never falls the same way twice. So it always does a directional change. But Bailey, what you were exposed to is we were fishing out. In, it was cold when we were in Florida, extremely cold. Water temperatures in the 50s. And those fish were what I call hold up. 
they got in the deepest part of those little lakes that we were fishing and they were on the outside of the weed line and they were basically, you know, relating to the bottom mm -hmm. and a snap jig was introduced to me by Dan and Dan, you know, fishes up North probably five years ago. Um, and I was like, I was blown away by how good that bait is not only fishing it on the bottom, but fishing it like a jerk bait for suspended fish because it's got that directional change and you can walk that bait really, really good. But here's the other thing about it. That snap jig, I also have some that are half ounce, three quarters with six odd hooks in them. You take that snap jig and you put like uh, uh, Jordan Lee's crawdad on there, mm -hmm. the Berkeley crawdad. It's just got the flat pinchers, no wiggly, just the flat pinchers. And you rig it on there like, God, you flip it around boat docks. It is unreal because when you pitch it or when you pitch it in there, it slides. But when it sits, the crowd adds up. But when you pop your rod tip, it's going to do a directional change and it's going to fall back down like that. I catch a lot of fish on that with a flip stick and 25-pound test line. That it's, is awesome. That, that is one of those baits that a company has made that is a sleeper it's one that i don't even really like talking about it because it is that good but it's never caught on because of what you said earlier us walleye bait that's a northern bait that's what everybody fishes up north well they do and it works small mouth dude small mouth love that bait so, i've watched yeah, bailey catch some pardon i said i've watched bailey catch some smallies on my boat oh yeah so it works yeah. i probably thought <laughs> You know, I'm here in Texas, you know, fishing down in Lake X today. The water temperature is 53, warmed up to 57. All the fish are out in about 30, 35 on bottom. And they're not that high up off the bottom. And I probably caught, I don't know, 15 on it today. Hmm. Long cast, 10-pound test line on a spinning rod using a half ounce. And just just raise the rod. And every one, is, that's weird about that bait. When they bite it, they choke it. Mm -hmm. They've got it all the way inside. So, mm -hmm. yeah, but you know, stuff like that is so much fun to go and experiment with. Oh, yeah. And that's yeah. what's cool about those trips, too, is you get the opportunity to, and I think not just trips, but fun fishing in general, when you get the opportunity to just kick back, put all the way your, your confidence base and the base that, sh you know, should be working and make sense that time and just try something completely new. Yeah. That's what's, it's, it's almost kind of freeing in that sense, but. I know you found a bait during that trip that really made that bait accentuate in terms of its movements. Yeah. That, uh, you don't want me to well, say I, it. <laughs> I, well, I didn't find that. This is what happened is I always carry a little box of snap jigs with me. And the first day that we went out, uh, Dan was with me. Mm -hmm. And we're fishing, you know, we're trying to figure it out, yada, yada, yada. I said, hey, Dan, you know, just in case, you know, I got some snap jigs. And he goes, you do? And I go, yeah. So he tied one on and normally he'll throw like a little shad body on there. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any shad bodies. So he tied on that little goat. <laughs> it works over the little general. Uh -huh. I mean, you, you rig it. So it's got a hump in it. That's what I've been throwing. The same bait. Mm -hmm. The same bait is what I caught him on today. That same goby with the blue, you know, that pearl belly on it. That's just silly. And, and who knows? You know, that, that may be a $100,000 technique for me in the future. You know, yeah. that's the cool thing is you never know where something is going to lead. And I keep telling Dan that 
with this forward-facing technology, lures, lure manufacturers have built lures for years for anglers for certain situations. And what I keep telling Dan is that with forward imaging, it's going to open up a whole new category of fishing lures that anglers can use to catch fish that they're seeing out in front of them. Mm-hmm. And that snap jig's one of them. I mean, it's a it's a great bait, great bait. I I still remember going to your over to your boat that day, and I saw it rigged up, and I'd seen it was chewed, so I knew you'd used it. And I was like, "How many did you catch on this?" And you told me you had you went like back to back like twenty three times or something like that. Mm-hmm. And this is the funniest part that made me laugh is that Ken Duke's standing right next to me. And we were laughing because it was Gobiashi, which was made for smallmouth, and you're waxing them on in Florida. Yeah. It, it was a funny thing is people, I think, attribute or they think too hard on it. It's just like you mentioned earlier in the show. It's situation-based. Read what's going on. Fish that moment. And if they're going to eat it, hey, they're going to eat it, especially yeah. in a place that's like that. the conditions were as tough as they were. Well, if you really think about it, if you look at some of the greatest lures that we've ever had introduced, have come from individuals or circumstances of people thinking outside the box. Mm -hmm. I remember, you know, back in the seventies when Bobby Garland came out with a gets it. I mean, you know, and Bobby was a friend of mine. I fished against, I started fishing against Bobby when I was 15. So I was exposed to the gets it, you know, at the very, very beginning. And he didn't know what he was going to call it until he took a friend fishing with him to show him this new bait and they were catching a bunch of fish on it. And the guy in the back was so excited. He goes, man, this thing flat gets it. That's what <laughs> awesome. the name came up. So Fantastic. That's why they call it a gets it. But as things evolve, I mean, look at the A-Rig. The gentleman that invented the A-Rig for two or three years was going to boat shows, begging people to use them, telling everybody how good they were. And all of us really educated, smart bass fishermen looked at that and go, I don't bass not going to bite that bass is not going to bite all those wires and all them blades. It goes to show how naive we were mm-hmm. of turning our back on something that I know I could have had two years, you know, earlier had I have been thinking outside of the box. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of lures like that, that yeah, some of them are one dimensional. They're good for a season or a short period of time, but when they're good, they're really, really good. Uh, top waters. You know, there's some top waters that you carry in your box 12 months out of the year to use them for three weeks out of the season. But when those three weeks are there, if you don't have that one tied on, you just don't catch them. So, I remember Kevin saying that about the net rig, is that he had a chance to fish the net rig super early. I was like, oh, this bait looks stupid. I'm going to keep throwing my jerk bait like Kevin Van Dam's known for. And Ned rig comes around, he's like, huh. I guess this thing's pretty good. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's oh, funny yeah. with, with like that Midwest Ned Rig thing. I got introduced to it up here on Lake Erie, oh, probably seven or eight years ago. And it was like just starting to like peek its head out. Boy, did that thing catch fish before people knew about it. I'll tell yeah, you that. Exactly. Like it was yeah. just, there was days where everybody's drop shotting out of Buffalo and we would throw that out there and the school would just ignite immediately. No, you don't get that. <laughs> Dude, out of Buffalo, that's one of my favorite places yeah. like you to fish. Yeah, it, it is a hidden – well, it's not so much a hidden gem, but it's a very untalked about gem. 
compared to all the other smallmouth fisheries in the area. It's so. uh, my biggest five fish smallmouth stringer came from there. I had five smallmouth that weighed 36, 11. <laughs> They're just all six pounders. Yep. Caught them on a three, three quarter ounce football head jig. Had a 25 feet of water. It happens. You know, just, oh yeah. That's amazing. It's, yeah. yeah, I uh, I love this place. I I don't know if I could ever leave Buffalo just because of the smallmouth fishing. Oh yeah. So it's yeah. it's um, I love fishing for fish that live underneath the ice. <laughs> to me, I call them stupid easy. <laughs> they bite. They bite. If you're not getting bit, it's because you're not around them. Yep. You need to keep hunting. That's what uh, Brad Rutherford, who works for Pure Fishing, calls them. Uh, calls them Cheeto eaters. <laughs> they'll eat everything. They'll eat, even eat a Cheeto. <laughs> yeah. They probably uh, would, honestly. They probably yeah. would. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> They're eat, eating machines. That's right. So Gary, we're gonna we're gonna let you go here in a second, but we got one more question left for you that we asked uh, the everybody. best question. Yeah, everyone that's their, their first time on the show that we like to, to end the show with. Um, and I'm really excited to, to hear your answer to it. And that is, if you had the opportunity to sit down, have a steak and a beer with three different individuals, and they don't have to be fishing related, and they could be alive a thousand years ago or alive today, it doesn't matter. Anyone, any three, who would you, what three would you sit down, have a steak and a beer with, and pick their brain? Um, you know, you're really going to get me on that one. <laughs> and some of the ones I really that I would want to sit down with, I probably it, let me just say this: ones that I would like to sit down with would be D. Thomas. That's the man that won that event. And when I introduced myself to him when I was 15 years old, he gave me a big bear hug. And I introduced myself and I said, "I'm Gary Klein, and one of these days I'm going to be better than you." Oh, he, gave me a big, he gave me a big bear hug and looked me dead in the eyes and he said, bring it on, son. That's awesome. Uh, D. Thomas Love taught it. me how to fish shallow, how to be aggressive. D. is still alive today. Talked to D. last week. Uh, great, great man. The other one was Mike Folkstead. I called him Mikey. When I grew up, I met Mike when I was 15 also. Uh, Mike was the offshore guru in California. Back in the 70s, 80s, I mean, Mike Folkstad, big name. I fished with him a lot. And I cannot remember a time that he ever made a cast to the bank. He fished with flashers and we would meter and drop buoys. And we fished, uh, you know, Havasu and Mojave and Mead and Lake Powell. Mike Folkstad, the other one's rich for him. Rich Forehands, retired lieutenant major in the Air Force. I met Rich also when I was 15. Richard was the reason I left California. He sat me down because I had been fishing with D now for several years. I was really good at flipping. I was too young to come back on the BASS circuit. I graduated in 79 or in 75. In 78, Richard sat me down at the breakfast table and he said, Gary, he said, now's the time for you to go back because he knew the passion I had to try to make, you know, compete. Mm -hmm. He said, you're single, you're living with your parents. You have a truck, two bass boats, and you're broke. He said, you cannot lose anything. 
go back and try. And he said, the worst thing that will ever happen to you is you'll go broke and you're already broke. So at least live your life having tried. Those three individuals, I'd love to sit down and have a beer with them. They're all alive. But because of those three, I am where I am today. That's freaking awesome. Yeah. It's an awesome, wholesome answer. Like that that's really cool. That yeah. might have been the quickest and most uh intuitive answer I think we've ever gotten. That's <laughs> well, awesome. you know, they're just good people. And the one thing that all three of them share is a passion for fishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They still fish. Last week, Dee and I were talking about fishing the Delta. He fishes the Delta about four times four times a week. If his health lets him get out there. Richard still fishes. Mike Folkstad still fishes. You know, and, and these Incredible. are guys I grew up with. That's amazing. Gary, I, I really got to say thank you for, one, taking the time out, and, two, dropping the amount of knowledge you did on everybody tonight. I uh, I greatly appreciate it. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure to get to see you and get to know you this past year, and uh, I look forward to seeing you real soon down in Grand Lake. Yeah, Red Crest. In yes, two sir. weeks, we'll be up there at Grand. We're going to have a good time. I Everybody's really invited. It's free. Like I said, we've got a sold out uh, auditorium and we got a lot of really cool stuff planned for it. Uh, I'll be there. You'll be there. Um, God, if anybody's got a question for me, just come up and I'll try to help them out, you know, the best I can. Uh, but again, I appreciate your support of the fishing industry. But most important, a podcast like this exposes and creates new anglers. Mm-hmm. And that's what's so cool. The more people we can get involved in our sport, our sport's going to grow and it'll be around for a long, long time. And we'll all become, you know, the caretakers of the sport. Right. No, right. I appreciate that's, it too. That's the goal. Yep. I look forward to seeing you real soon. And if there are Thank any you. tornadoes, just let just open up the rod locker of that Camus and I think it'll be okay. Yeah, we're good. We're good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank you very much, guys. I appreciate it. Andrew, thank you. Yeah, I look forward to a uh, talking to you guys again. Thank you. All right, Have Gary. A good night. We'll chat Bye. with you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Dude, that was probably one of my most favorite shows we've ever done. Yeah. Hands down, without a doubt. There's just like I I literally didn't want to say anything. I was just like soaking it up like a sponge. I'm like, this is incredible. Well, that's why, one, I was so excited to get Gary on, one, just because the amount of mass knowledge he has of, one, just stories, but, two, knowledge of bass fishing in, in terms of a, a psychological standpoint, how bass work, and just from straight amount of years of, of time on the water. Mm-hmm. Um, but also for the fact that Gary is an amazing storyteller, amazing at explaining things. So he's the perfect podcast guest because you can just hand him the mic and he will, he'll answer. So like there was multiple questions that I had for him that I did not have to ask. Same. He knows, he knows his way around. Like, yeah. So it's, it was an absolute privilege to get Gary on the show and hopefully it's not the last and uh, looking forward to seeing him in a couple of weeks down at Redcrest, which I am super excited for being that's the first one that they're really going to make a move to get the public at. So I'm intrigued, but uh, Andy, what do you, what do you think about the show? Oh, are you talking Red Crest or this show? This show. Oh, Gary. it was absolutely what are your incredible. Take um, just the vast understanding of everything going on that the average angler gets stuck in a train of thought that they don't think of everything. Like, 
For instance, you might have a flipper who goes down a bank, right? And their favorite color is black and blue. And they're just going to flip that and live and die by it. Or you're going to have an angler who lives and dies by an A-rig or a crankbait. And they're stuck in their ways. And what Gary's explaining is you can catch fish no matter how you want to catch a fish. So it always comes back to fish your confidence and fish your strength, but also be open. Mm -hmm. That's just a different caliber. He's just on a completely different level in terms of of awareness of (laughs) his conditions. Um, But also in terms of, and what I really admire about it is like, it's he one surrounds himself with positive people Two always looks at the day from a positive standpoint. And in that, in that case, you're never out of it. And like, I, there was, for an example, one of the Bassmaster Opens I fished, it wasn't the guy I had drew, but we were around another guy that basically was saying it was like 9 a.m. on the St. Lawrence River of all places. Basically that he, he doesn't know what he's going to put on Instagram today because he has zero fish in the live well. And I'm like, well, if that's your mindset, then basically you, you already lost. Anything. You might you as well lost. put on the trailer and go home. Why the heck did you come yeah. here? Uh, because 9 a.m. and we have so many hours left to like to get it done. Uh, I just... What Gary explained and the amount of things that are in his mental process to quickly evaluate in his equation to put something together and what he thinks about and looks at. I mean, I think that's such a traditional angler's mindset being that we didn't they didn't have the technology that we do, whereas now guys are getting on the water and basically looking right at their screen. Whereas these guys get on the water, their screen was in front of them in terms of. Are there birds on the bank? What's going on the surface? You know, clarity, water temp, moving water. You know, what are the conditions been the last week? What are the conditions happening right now? Like it's, it's crazy stuff like that of just a, a situational awareness that Mm -hmm. they're on a a completely different level. And that was freaking awesome to hear him break that down. Oh, the, the story about going way up the Creek at Toledo Bend was insane with Rick Lund. It's just like, who let those two guys in the same boat together, first of all. And uh, just like the spinnerbait story and the little things that a lot of us don't even think about, like throwing a micro spinnerbait in shade line and burning it and then just killing it and catching fish. Like it's crazy. Yeah. And here we, yeah. So there's some pretty cool stories that hopefully we'll get Gary back on here to, uh, to unleash about him and and Rick Clun traveling with the, with each other before, they were like the big names that they are today. Mm-hmm. Um, both coming from the West Coast. It's some pretty, really, really cool stuff that hopefully we'll get to uncover. Um, but uh, mm-hmm. it's today was a, a really good show, and uh, big th- again, big thank you to Gary. And uh, do we should be we should try to get some of these uh, the share Lunker program, someone that he's with right now, yeah, come on this show and talk about why their conservation is so effective because there's a lot of states out here. Uh, and I'll take shots at New York that you should learn from and take a lot of notes on how to improve your fishery. Because, I mean, I'll just say, I'll say personally, this is a conversation we have a lot, Andrew, is New York is has an amazing fishery as it is with such crappy conservation. And could you imagine what it could be with good conservation? With Like, if our yes. conservation cared about bass, it would be insane. Yeah. But I mean, like the bass is only a small dollar amount. And it's kind of funny, too, because like New York State, when it comes to fishery, it's kind of broken up into two brackets, right? We have New York City in the saltwater and Long Island and 
whatever that saltwater fishery is a striped bass fishery bluefish and then you come upstate and all the money through new york state for fishing is really through the salmon and trout industry like it brings in so much money and i'm going to call out new york state here they epically fail at our trout and salmon program so um every year it seems to get worse and worse with the amount of fish we have returning and there's this crazy little invasive species, not called a goby, but an alewife that lives in the Great Lakes. And um, they spend way too much money trying to bring back the Atlantic salmon with almost no returns and pumping lake trout in the lakes that eat all of the bait. But the big money is king salmon and steelhead and brown trout. And the, the numbers of king salmon, steelhead, and brown brown trout seem to decline every year because they're so focused on these native fish and lake trout are thriving just fine. But bringing back this Atlantic salmon that has no chance of survival in our lakes and rivers, that if they took an eighth of the money and implemented that into our bass fishery, oh my gosh, it would be like the sky's the limit for New York because all of our fisheries are so fertile because every year our creeks get flooded every year. There's new nutrition into our lakes and bait fish populations. And most of them are thriving. And then they go out and carpet bomb and kill all the weeds. So like, it's fun thing to go. I can, I can go on a five hour rant of things that we could probably do better as a fishery from a conservation point in our fisheries. But um, unfortunately, a lot of our lakes are run by the rich and we, as anglers, have very little say. Well, that's the problem. We have no say. We don't even have a seat at the table, and that's something we've been yeah. trying to, to work on, and they just won't listen, which yeah. lovely. But uh, on that note, I think we'll, we'll quit that and save that for another episode. Um, but I will say, folks, we got into some juice tonight. Yeah. Uh, speaking specifically on some bait juice, that Berkeley Snap Jig, if you guys are looking to get into some and try it for yourselves, they are on Omnia Fishing, just about every model you can get. Uh, and use code SERIOUS10 to get yourself 10% off if you've already ordered from Omnia Fishing. Mm-hmm. If this is your first order through Omnia Fishing, you can use code SERIOUS. All the, the discount codes are down below, and you'll get 15% off your first order using that code. So uh, be sure to check that out and get yourself some Berkeley Snap Jigs because I'll tell you, they're the juice. doesn't matter where you are. Just so, give them a shot. Absolutely. And, and one more thing, too, is I want to thank all of our weekly – the our viewers that tune in every week and come in with all the great questions and stuff. You guys rock. We appreciate it. If you never have, and uh, can you go back and maybe leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, um, letting us know how much you truly do enjoy the our platform here? We greatly appreciate it. Heck yeah. Yeah, we see a lot of the same names on Tuesday Night Lives and especially the fantasy fishing shows. You guys are the MVPs. You know, we do not have a massive platform, but the the small community we got going, we appreciate each and every one of you guys. Uh, and that being said, if you guys are going to be down in Tulsa for Redcrest at all, I will be down there. Give me a shout. We'll love to say hello, get you some merch. If I Hopefully I can get some merch down in time, but I will have stickers. Not that stickers are much, but if you want some stickers, I'll give you a sticker. Uh, <laughs> either way, I'd love to shake your hand, say hello, meet you guys. And uh, Andy, hell of a show tonight, man. Yeah, the the real star was Gary, That's the right. OG Gary Klein. So 
that that was incredible. I this might be one I go back and listen to a few times, and I normally don't. I'll be honest, but uh, yeah, I hate my own voice. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> and um, but yeah, like listening to Gary and the stories, I was just infatuated. I'm like, man, I don't even want to ask a question. I just want to let him keep talking. Yeah, exactly. Well, folks, we appreciate all of you guys. Uh, look forward to our episode on Friday. That's going to be with John Sokup. That's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to be talking a lot of technology. It could be a complete flip side almost of tonight uh, in terms of anglers from different eras and what they kind of grew up in, what their niches are. Um, So look forward to that one, and we'll see you guys on Friday. Well, that was an awesome show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you can and your app allows it, please leave us a rating and review. It really helps us get seen more, which allows us to access more time and more variables to be able to bring to the show to make it better for you guys. So hope you enjoyed it. And if you did and you like some of the things we talked about in this episode and want to check out our show partners, all of that is in every single show description. You can click down there. It's got all of our discount codes, all of our links to our show partners where you guys can go and support the people that support this show and help us make this show happen. And of course, this show does not happen without you guys. You guys know we appreciate you. You're the Sears Sanger fam. You're the reason we're here. Appreciate y'all. And we'll see y'all on the next one.